Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. Today we have a special episode for you. We love receiving messages from our listeners and occasionally we get some questions. They're often really interesting and a little while ago we put out a call for some additional questions that we'd answer on a future episode of the podcast. Well, that's what we're going to do today. All of the questions during this episode were sent in through the contact form on our website or emailed directly to contact at beingwellpodcast.com. If you'd like to submit a question to be answered during a future mailbag, I'll include a link to our contact form in the description of today's episode. When we started getting going on answering these questions, we found that we had some pretty thorough answers to them and were really kind of interested. So what we're going to be doing here is a series of episodes where a couple of questions will be clustered sort of by their general topic area. Today, we're dealing with questions related to things that hijack our attention, specifically the general hysteria we're often exposed to in our lives, and then secondarily, violent video games and other violent forms of media, and what the science tells us on the connection between those violent forms of media and actual real-life violence. As a note, some of these questions have been lightly edited for clarity or to remove any identifying details. And in a few cases, I actually broke one big question into a number of smaller questions, again, to help with clarity. To help with answering those questions you guys sent in, I'm joined today by Dr. Rick Hansen. So how are you doing? I'm good. I'm looking forward to this mailbag episode. It's great. Yeah, I think it'll be really fun. We got a lot of stuff that was really interesting, really very nuanced, and covered a wide variety of territories. I'm going to start us off with a question that we've received many versions of and which is asked really regularly during workshops and book signings and other kind of public events that you do. The question is, I feel like our current culture constantly bombards us with hysteria. What can we do to eliminate it or stop it from influencing us? What an interesting question. And where I would start is probably one of the wisest things to do when you encounter a question, which is try to reflect on what the question actually means. Hmm. So what is the hysteria, let's say? And one way to interpret that, which seems pretty obvious and probably the case, is the kind of white-hot political, cultural intensity mm. that seems really to be the case in America. Even people who come from other Western countries that I'm familiar with, like New Zealand or Canada or France or Switzerland, will comment on the unbelievable political and cultural intensity in America these days. The amount of information we're getting, the intensity of the polarization around it, the flag waving, in a word, the hysteria. So I've thought about that question from different angles. First of all, one person's hysteria, let's say, could be another person's barely sufficient response to the crisis we're in Mm. of one kind or another. Not picking sides about the crisis we're in. And I think a lot about our deeply social nature. And one of the most alarming things for anyone goes back to the chicken little fable that the sky is actually falling. And if you really believe that the sky is falling, if you really believe, let's say, that illegal immigrants are destroying America, or if alternately, let's say, and very often it is alternately, you are deeply concerned 
about the tipping points that we're in, in terms of irrevocable, disastrous levels of climate change, uh, the tipping points over the next dozen years or so. If in either of those cases, you feel like the sky really is falling and no one's paying attention, well, then you're going to be, quote unquote, hysterical about it. You're going to be loud. You're going you're to try to get awareness for it. Paradoxically, if there were actually more civic engagement and higher levels of accurate information about what's really happening and greater participation, that actually might reduce some of the hysteria on all sides. That's kind of a counterintuitive opening reflection. On a more individual level for somebody who feels kind of bombarded by these things, what are some of the pieces of advice that you would give them? Yeah, that's where I think I have some expertise. The the first part, I'm just a dude at the end of the bar with an opinion. You know, I'm a citizen informed, but I'm just a guy with an opinion. With regard to the second question, which is how can we do about it? My own view a little bit is to establish in your own mind what you feel is your own civic duty. Mm. How much information do you need to pull the lever responsibly when you walk into the voting booth every couple of years? Beyond that, do you really need to be preoccupied? Mm-hmm. And this is where, too, I think about this really powerful comment I read once from a man who grew up under horrible dictatorships in Haiti, under Duvalier and his son, Baby Doc Duvalier. And a number of this man's friends were murdered in their early 20s or mm-hmm. teens. He fled the country just a step ahead of the death squads, settled in Canada, not speaking English, uh, working as a dishwasher. And he was a very talented writer and he gradually worked his way up. And he was recently given a major literary prize in the French language as a writer. Mm. And he was interviewed and he said this thing that really, really struck me for us. I've thought about it many times at all levels, whether it's with regard to your neighbor or your boss or your prime minister, fill in the blank. He said a dictator wants everything to be about them. They don't really care if you like them or dislike them as long as you're talking about them all day long, as long as you're thinking about them all day long. And I think that what's really important is to not let all that invade the mind. I mean, you quoted the Buddha when we were talking with somebody else earlier today about not letting things invade the mind and remain. In other words, be as aware as you need to be aware of the latest scandal this or politics that or scientific report about the state of the world. Okay, fine. But if it preoccupies you, if you can't sleep at night, if you're destroying your friendships because of it, if you've you've got to tune into fill in the blank, MSNBC or Fox News or double check the latest blog reports when you go to the bathroom or something like that, it's probably landed too much inside you. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great framing response to that sort of a question. I, I would also just refer to some of the previous episodes we've done on topics such as calm yeah, and other topics related to quieting anxiety and managing the mouse inside of the brain, mm-hmm. as you refer to in yeah. some of your other work. Because what we're really talking about here when we're talking about hysteria is fear. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, that is the root that's astute. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the root cause that we're mm-hmm. looking at is things that evoke fear yeah. inside of us. And fear is an incredibly powerful motivator, as we know, both from history and mm-hmm. from our current history, yeah. uh, the current states in the world, and just some choices that have been made politically over the last 
anywhere between kind of five to 15 years if you want to talk about that and which ones were made from a stance of fear fundamentally and what are the consequences of those choices. And so inside of our own lives, when we start to get that experience of pernicious fear invading us, Mm -hmm. then I think that it's really worthwhile, as you're saying, to do a very honest accounting of what are the things that we need to be afraid of and what are the things that we need to be kind of water torturing ourselves around. Just one drip every night on top of our heads that eventually drives a person mad. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that it's up to everyone to find their own balance between those various questions. If I could, I'd, I'd like to make one last little comment about a, a topic that has been engaging me a lot lately, including in my own personal practice. Mm-hmm. And in a kind of summary way, I'll, I'll say, how do we balance the two truths of helplessness and agency? Mm-hmm. In other words, I think a lot of what people might describe as the hysteria is other people getting worked up over things they can't affect mm. or trying to get you worked up mm-hmm. over things that they want you to get worked yeah, up about. I think that that's really the one that I see just in the, in the kind of traditional trope of you're, you're walking by the TV store and on every TV is some terrifying report that you can do absolutely nothing about. Yeah, exactly. So, how do we learn to recognize the truth of helplessness when it's real Mm -hmm. without that becoming political apathy Mm -hmm. or a sense of despair Mm -hmm. and simply live in the truth of that, the profound truth that almost everything that affects anything is totally out of your hands. (laughs) Going all the way back to the Big Bang. And on the other hand, simultaneously, claim for yourself the power to do what you can, including where you choose to rest your attention. The people you choose not to listen to, the channels you choose not to serve, the choices you make when to turn it off, to disengage. And how do we bring both of those together? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes people are so disturbed by their sense of helplessness that rather than feeling the helplessness, they move into, call it hysteria, they they move into strong Mm -hmm. reactions and anger and intensity or or freaking out, which in a way is a kind of flight away from or defense against just feeling the helplessness. The fact that your heart is really moved, you're compassionate, let's say, you're really concerned, and there's nothing you can do. I think sometimes by analogy that many, many people, me included, often feel like we are passengers way down in the bottom of the big ship, Titanic, let's say, down in steerage. We don't have any real power. We don't have any pull with the captain. We're not in first class. (laughs) We're not sitting at the captain's table. (laughs) And yet we are aware of the fact that the ship is sinking. Mm -hmm. And half of our fellow passengers don't want to hear about it. And the ship is really sinking. What do we do about that? And how do we both live in the truth of the ship sinking while simultaneously doing what we can. And I think for me, that's just an open question, mm-hmm. but it, it's a way of framing a fair amount of what's happening, I, I think, around this reaction, let's say, to other people's reactions to the Sure, news. yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, as, as a one-second reflection here, we've spent some time with this question. We're probably going to move on in a moment, but 
for me, what's always really powerful is claiming the areas inside of my life where I do have some agency, mm-hmm. whether that be, as you're saying, in terms of which news sources I choose to interact with to how much news I choose to interact with. And as you were saying earlier, what's kind of a necessary level of knowledge for me to make good choices inside of my own life, because that's really the sphere that I can influence. Yeah. And last, I just want to also name the word hysteria tends to be mainly historically allocated against women. Mm -hmm. I mean, the root of the word hysteria comes from women's reproductive organs fundamentally. And so Mm -hmm. I think I just want to acknowledge our usage of that term and our intent here to use it in an ungendered and more general kind of way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that's probably enough time spent there. Uh, Do you want to serve up another one? Yeah, let me ask you a question, Forrest. I'm excited. So we've we've gotten questions about that have to do with the dangers in consuming modern entertainment media, notably playing intense, active, violent shooter games. Mm -hmm. So what do you say to all this? It's obviously a very, very common question inside of the kind of cultural discourse around violence in media in general. And it's totally a fair one. The, the kind of specific question that we asked was pretty narrowly defined around violent video games and their influence on violence in kids. Yeah. And, you know, is a 14-year-old more likely to become a violent human if they engage with violent media? I've got some personal experience here. I played a lot of video games as a kid. In general, I tended not to play ones that were more aggressively violent in nature. This wasn't because I was prevented by you guys. It just wasn't where my personal inclinations were in terms of the games that I enjoyed. So I'm actually going to talk about this using some current research because I was very interested in the question and I thought that it made sense to really get a grounding kind of in what the science says because the more intense the narrative is around some of these issues, the more important I think it is to really go back to what are the actual facts on the ground as near as we can tell. To give an opinion and to start with just an opinion, which is always very scary, um, (laughs) video games have been a frequent target of demonization, but the link between violent media or video games and actual real-life physical violence perpetrated by one person on another person has always been a bit more tenuous than an awful lot of popular media outlets would like you to believe. Mm. And... I'm going to offer some recent examples. So give me one second while I kind of pull up my paper where I've got some notes written here. Yeah, so in February, that's of this year, February of this year, a study was done in the UK that was led by an associate professor at Oxford and a senior lecturer at Cardiff. So these are major research institutions and great schools. It studied about 1,000 British teenagers that were aged 14 or 15. So big study, a lot of people in it and an equal number of their caregivers. And the authors concluded that there was no evidence for a critical tipping point that related violent game engagement to aggressive behavior. In other words, they could not find a statistically significant relationship between these two things. To quote the lead researcher for the study, the idea that violent video games drive real-world aggression is a popular one, but it hasn't tested very well over time. Despite interest in the topic by parents and policymakers, the research has not demonstrated that there is a cause for concern. So that's a pretty strong statement by somebody who ran a pretty big major study. And it's not an isolated one. In 2017, the American Psychological Association's Media, Psychology, and Technology Division 
put out a statement that included the following. Uh, journalists and policymakers do their constituencies a disservice in cases where they link acts of real-world violence with the perpetrator's exposure to violent video games or other violent media. There's little scientific evidence to support the connection, and it may distract us from addressing those issues that we know to contribute to real-world violence. So again, really a very strong statement here from a division inside of the APA. Not to kind of wind poetic here and keep on going, but I think it's relevant to sort of show that these are multiple instances of something really important being said. In 2013, the Consortium of Scholars published an open letter that suggested previous conclusions related to the connection between violent video games and aggressive behavior had been pretty overstated. I'm happy to include links to these various studies in the description of the episode. So that was a lot of information that I just dumped on you real quick there, and I don't want to provide an unnuanced or one-sided perspective. And the reality is that there are absolutely studies that have connected violent video games to aggression in teenagers. Specifically, in October of 2018, there was a pretty enormous meta-analysis that was published that included 24 studies and over 17,000 participants. And it found that kids who played violent video games did indeed become more aggressive over time. But how much did these games influence their behavior? And it turned out that the meta-analysis suggested that the increase had an effect size of 0.08. In other words, to put it into common language, that means the study concluded that less than 1% of the variation in aggression over time in these 17,000 participants could be traced back to violence in video games. Some, after all of that kind of info dump on people, there's a lot of debate around this subject. And the conclusions are not super clear. Part of the problem comes when we try to really trace impulse to response and try to really determine the level in which somebody becoming a little desensitized to something might lead to actual real-life physical violence being perpetrated by that person or increases in aggression. And there are room here for a lot of different viewpoints. I just think it's really important to suggest and to point to the research that has over time showed no real causative link between direct violence perpetrated by people against one another and the presence of violence in video games or other media. Mm. That's great. Well, I'm really glad you did that deep dive. Before we go further, uh, and I hope this won't be just terribly geeky, but Mm -hmm. this surfaces a whole bunch of deep questions about what actually constitutes evidence in the social sciences and how academics routinely use language that when you really actually understand what they're saying is really problematic. And also it raises questions about subgroups, mm-hmm. individuals maybe who's for whom there really was in the life of that kid, let's say, a significant influence that moved from mm-hmm. spending five hours a day playing shooter games to becoming physically aggressive on the totally. worst day of their life at school. Totally. Yeah. Let's say. Mm-hmm. And so with regard, just I wanted to say the one thing about the evidence thing is that As you know, the classic standard for so-called statistical significance is that essentially there's one chance in 20 that the findings of the study are due to chance alone. So there's a threshold, all right? If it's below that, if there's a finding below that threshold, we say, and very often people will say, there's no relationship or there's no correlation or there's no significance. But that actually is a mistaken use of the language. The Mm -hmm. truth is, there is evidence 
And there's a lot of pushback in the scientific community, especially in the social sciences, about the use of so-called confidence intervals and these thresholds yeah, that are totally. really categorical. And people who have any kind of a mathematical background, and I have just enough to get me in trouble, understand that it's really a question of degree. and. Any kind of evidence is informative, and then you have to sort out what to do about that. So that's the one thing I want to say. The other thing mm-hmm. I just want to kind of raise more generally that I've seen, mm-hmm. and I, I saw it in the life of everyone I've known who's consuming media. It's not just the question of what's the effect of the media? What's the effect of being on Facebook a lot? What's the effect of playing video games mm-hmm. a lot? But what is it crowding out? Mm-hmm. There's something like the average American child is watching television six hours a day, or probably the equivalent these days of being on screen six hours a day on average. Well, what is that crowding out? Mm -hmm. What kind of real conversation is that crowding out? What kind of real exploration of personal interests is that crowding out? The development of things like being able to play the guitar or juggle or Mm -hmm. jump up and down on a pogo stick skillfully. I don't know. And so that would be the other side of it. The the last thing I'll just say is the real question of subgroups. Mm -hmm. So if you take, let's suppose, someone who is male with a really aggressive young man, a lot of testosterone, some biological factors running here, and that's someone who is by nature toward the spirited slash ADHD end of the spectrum, prone to impulsivity, drawn to intense stimuli. And then you also say for that person that there are not a lot of balancing positive forces in that kid's life, Mm -hmm. stable family, good schooling, good kind of cultural values around that person. You just boom, 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 boom. You start adding all that in. And let's suppose that of all the kids who are kind of like that from the start, this one kid just gets really into it, just gets really drawn in. In that particular person's life, you can see the causal influences upstream of that early involvement, let's say, in doing tons and tons of violent video games, let's say. And so that's the question for me as well. What if we're talking about sort of the most vulnerable people in the population and then how some kind of influence would affect them? Yeah, I think that's a totally fair point. And as an additional point, That speaks to something that you're mentioning here. In that meta-analysis that was published in October, the authors found that there was an ethnic component to how likely somebody was to be influenced by violent video games. They found actually that Caucasian teenagers were the most influenceable, Mm. while Hispanic teenagers were the least influenceable Mm. among the groups which were studied. Really interesting, and it raises some questions about why that might be. I don't have good answers for those questions at the moment. I certainly don't claim to be a researcher on this topic, but it's interesting that there was just that population variation, even just on the basis of ethnicity, without including any of the other vulnerability factors that you're pointing to here, Mm -hmm. which are well taken. Again, to wander scarily into the world of personal opinion, I just think that video games are very demonizable. Hmm. They're a very easy medium to demonize because it's very, very easy to draw a one-to-one relationship of a kid looking at the floating gun in front of them and the crosshairs on the screen to horrible real-life events that have happened. And I just want to be clear here that I'm being relatively narrowly focused in my 
sort of truth claims here, and it's about violence in video games leading to violent acts. I yeah. think that the more structural questions you're raising around what do video games crowd out yeah. and video game addiction, which is a major problem for a enormous uh, yeah. percentage of the population that interacts with the material. And I would say that, I mean, certainly for myself, there was absolutely a period in my life where I think that you could fairly claim that I was addicted to video games mm-hmm. or at the very least that I was really called by them in yeah, one way or yeah. another if it didn't go to full on addiction. Mm-hmm. And those broader questions about that media in general, I think are are totally fair ones and totally yeah. open ones. It's kind of the narrow truth claim around does violence in video games lead to violence in real life that my eyebrows kind of start to raise a little bit around. Yeah. But those other questions I think are all totally reasonable. It's perfectly fine to complain about the spread of pernicious violence inside media, including kind of unavoidable exposure to violence that we get through things like, hello, cable news almost every day. And it's very much another thing to defer individual responsibility. If you have a 12-year-old, you get to control what that 12-year-old consumes from a media standpoint while they're at your house. Mm. You don't get to control it all the time when they go over to their friends, but you get to control it when they're within your walls. So, Forrest, uh, I hope someday that you too will become a parent. Sure, yeah. And that someday you will have a strapping young Mm -hmm. teenager or more than one and ballpark your kids in high school, Mm -hmm. okay? And let's say your kid is doing okay, nothing crazy, decent grades, friends, not a nut job, basically okay, good enough, Mm -hmm. all right? Now you got your kid, your kid, let's say, is a sophomore, junior in high school. Sure, yeah. What would be the way you would think about the question of, quote unquote, how much video games should you let that kid play? Mm -hmm. Or more generally, how much screen time more broadly, Mm -hmm. TV, just kind of stuck on Facebook all the time and Mm -hmm. or playing video games? How much would you allow your kid? I think that it's an almost impossible question to answer in a vacuum. So I'm going to try to unvacuumize it a little bit. This is just purely from personal opinion, and I am not a developmental psychologist, so please take all of this with a grain of salt. My personal feeling is that the place for intervention lies before a kid is 10 years old. Oh. Uh, we know a lot about the development of the brain, and we know a lot about the pernicious influence of things like screen time on the development of the brain. This has actually been pretty well studied up to this point. Mm. And a lot of those indicative impulses actually get settled into us at a relatively young age. Oh. Or to put it another way, we're more vulnerable to them the earlier it starts. Wow. So my personal leaning would be to do everything within my human power to reduce exposure to kind of screen time in general before a kid is six or seven. Mm. Now, this is a really easy thing to say as a non-parent. And then probably your kid pops out and the second one's on the way. And man, is it so easy to give that kid an iPad. Yeah, or park him in front of... Yeah, park him in front of Sesame Street, Street, do whatever. And and I totally... Look, I'm very sensitive to the reality that I have not had this experience and my opinion might change very rapidly once I have it. So, you know, don't hold me to this in 10 years. I intend to because we're recording this. Yeah, absolutely. It might just come back to bite me. You're going to play this for me in a little while. But yeah, I mean, so that would be my first point of inclination is that I would do really my level best to control the media somebody is exposed to when they're in their absolutely formative years. Then from there, I think honestly, a lot of it's about teaching good habits Mm. and about teaching good ways of interacting with your mind. I didn't have a Facebook account until I was in college. I didn't have a smartphone until I'd graduated from college. 
I was actually a little bit late mm-hmm. to some of these technological innovations that happened during my kind of developmental time. And I think that that was actually pretty good for me. I think that it left some good residues that kind of slowed down the progression of addiction inside of my own life. And so I would also be inclined to kind of do that thoughtfully with my child personally. Mm. But it's, again, it's not because I'm worried about them becoming a sociopath. Mm. It's because of that question you asked, what else? Yeah. You know, what could they be doing with that time? And you know, to do my due diligence here, as a note, there's plenty of evidence that video games actually have a lot of positive impacts on development, particularly when it comes to things like visual spatial recognition, problem solving through time. There are a lot of actually learning and puzzle games that are focused specifically on helping kids develop trained skills around certain things. So I don't want to act like there's no value there. Mm-hmm. But I do think that, you know, on the whole, it's probably better to learn a musical instrument than it is to learn how to play a video game. And so that would just be my personal inclination as a parent. So for the moment, that's all we're going to have time for. During this episode, we covered two questions related to things that hijack our attention. The first being the kind of general hysteria that's present in modern culture and is particularly present in modern American culture related to political questions of various kinds. Rick made a great point about this balance between where we can find agency in our lives versus where we have to accept our own helplessness. And also how ultimately one of the purest signs of agency we have is the ability to control the information that we take in. Sometimes it's a good idea to do our best to just unplug from unpleasant stimuli particularly when they don't necessarily directly influence our lives and when there's really very little we can do about them. Then we went into a discussion about violence in media and the extent to which violent media really incline people to violence. I gave a a pretty impassioned defense of video games, quoting a lot of different research and statistics. And my point really inside of that was not that violent video games don't cause violence, It was more that there is a open question here around this material and that we should really be cautious about the ways in which we demonize different kinds of things simply because the subject matter initially appears to be objectionable. We then went into a conversation related to effective child rearing, where I was asked to give some opinions on something I haven't done yet, which of course made me slightly uncomfortable, but I hope it was entertaining for you, the listener. We went into a conversation about how many screens are too many screens. And then the related question of what is media consumption crowding out? And what are some other things that maybe it would be better if they were present in our lives instead of that media? So that's all that we have time for today. If you enjoyed the episode, we'd really appreciate it. If you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, it really does help us out. It's one of the best ways you can support the podcast. So until next time, thanks for listening.